The next patient was presented to Drs. Blum and Tripathy by Dr. Zelkowitz. She's 97 and she takes no medications and she has no walker and she found a breast cancer about six months prior and she saw a local surgeon who did a needle biopsy and it was non-diagnostic so she went home and she came back five months later and she had a relatively large mass and she went to see the surgeon who did a simple mastectomy and she had a five plus centimeter invasive duct carcinoma that was ERPR positive and her two negative. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman? Does she live by herself? Does she have a family support? She's really quite remarkable. She lives by herself. She takes no medication. And I kept asking her, a little hydrochlorothiazide? She takes no medication. She lives by herself. I mean, she's appropriately frail, but otherwise healthy. Goes to the doctor, she says, twice a year. That's what her children want her to do. And that was it. She basically said, what do you think I need to do, which was really very difficult because I really wanted her to tell me what to do because I didn't know what to do at 97 because I couldn't quite figure out what her comorbidities were. And and I tried to put her into the adjuvant model, but I think, you know, it was like jammed up after I did that. (laughs) So we looked for comorbid issues with her, but she said, what do you think I should do? And so I said, for bone density. And what did her bone density show? And her bone density showed that she had some T-score of minus 1.8. So she had osteopenia, but not osteoporosis. So Joanne, what are your thoughts? Her metastatic disease evaluation was negative. I didn't do it. The only thing that was done was she had a chest x-ray, CBC and Chem 13. I actually was called about her from the OR and said, should we do her nodes? And I said, if there's nothing palpable, I can't imagine what I'm going to do with that information. So she did not have her nodes done. The surgeon was very concerned for whatever the reason that there was some data somewhere that there was a higher risk of reaction to the dive for a sentinel node in an elderly patient. I wasn't aware of that, and so I didn't have a really hard time with them not proceeding with further evaluation of her axilla because I didn't know how it was going to change things. But she does have a five-centimeter lesion. Right. Well, I would put this lady on an aromatase inhibitor. The question is whether you'd radiate her also. And the fact that the axilla wasn't explored is a bit of a problem because she has a risk of local recurrence, which could be really bothersome to her. Right. And it could cause her significant morbidity. You have to all weigh this against the chance that she's going to be alive over the next five years or the next 10 years. You can say pretty likely right. she's not going to be alive in 10 years, right. but she may well be alive in five. And so the question is, is she going to have a local regional relapse in that time period that would cause her morbidity? So this would be someone that I'd refer to the radiation oncologist to get their take on this. Should you radiate the axilla or should you radiate the superclave and the chest wall? And that's really the issue for this lady. Tavu, what would you think you'd be doing here? Well, my preference is to keep both surgical steel and gamma rays away from this patient's axilla. I think that for her, functional status is probably the most important I would normally be concerned about axillary recurrence in someone who was younger and didn't have comorbidities, but even a perfectly healthy person at 97 years old has a fairly significant chance of death with every coming year, and so that definitely has to be factored in, whereas some of the things you might do now could immediately cause her problems, certainly surgically going into the axilla, so I wholeheartedly agree with not doing surgery. I think radiation is probably not as harmful and could be considered. I personally wouldn't do it, but it would be a reasonable thing to consider. She helped us with the radiation issue because she said it was too much to come every day for that period of time. Let me stand corrected. Her bone density was minus 2.2, so it was a little bit closer to that. 
And I thought that the lesser of the evil was the osteoporosis versus giving her tamoxifen. So I gave her an aromatase inhibitor. And how long has she been on it now? She's been on it for six months because she came back and saw me in follow-up. And my experience with aromatase inhibitors, for my preface, is that the arthralgias are a lot worse than we were taught. Maybe because I see only breast cancer. It's a real problem. Needless to say, she's doing perfectly fine with it. No arthralgias at all? No nothing? Can you comment on the arthralgias, Joanne, and how you approach the patient who comes back on an AI complaining about that? Well, it's certainly been well described. It's a significant risk. It seems to get better with time in some patients. In some patients, it seems to be aromatase inhibitor dependent. There's some that for one patient, that one may be less bothersome than another. There seems to be a whole group of people for whom they don't have any arthralgias. And then there are some that have terrible arthralgias that you have to take them off therapy. And we've had that experience on some of the clinical trials that we've done. So I recommend NSAIDs and as little medication as possible for patients because of other potential side effects of medications for medications. But it can be a problem for patients. It is interesting that there's been all this data about tamoxifen's metabolism. The tamoxifen is metabolized to endoxifen, which is affected by CY2PG hypermetabolizers that can be poor metabolizers. So there's good metabolizers and poor metabolizers. And the poor metabolizers, a certain subset, about 4 or 10% or so, will have no response or will have failed to have a benefit from tamoxifen. And it can be affected by a whole group of drugs that we use commonly, not just the SSRIs like Prozac or Paxil, but cimetidine, ditropan, a whole group of medicines that I didn't realize. So if you think about using tamoxifen in patients, you really have to start thinking, at least based on the Mayo Clinic data, on all these drugs that might interact with it. So in thinking about that, I'm even less enthusiastic about using tamoxifen. We have the TAM followed by aromasin data from the IES trial versus tamoxifen, and that's clearly better. But in thinking about this, you really have to know what that patient's going to do with that drug, with the metabolism of tamoxifen. I think in this lady, the choice is more about toxicity than efficacy. Yeah. Well, efficacy, aromatase inhibitor would be better. And the elderly are often sedentary. And so we tend to use AIs right. because of the lower thromboembolic risk. But even in someone in whom it seems pretty neutral to you, a low-risk breast cancer in the adjuvant setting, for example, but I think we have to really start thinking about this metabolism aspect of tamoxifen, and I just wanted to bring that up. W, I didn't ask you what you would do with this woman in terms of systemic therapy. Do you agree with the AI? I would favor an AI over tamoxifen. I do think that, especially at this age, the complication rate from vascular problems, thrombosis, and stroke actually gets to be quite high. Regardless of age, you would consider that? I mean, I guess if you do it for somebody 97, that's kind of getting to the top of the scale. I generally think that for pretty much all postmenopausal patients, I'm going to go with an AI now that we have more safety data. The one exception is always going to be the patient with really marked osteoporosis, and then, of course, those who simply cannot tolerate it with marked myalgias and arthralgias. I just want to comment about the arthralgias because it's always difficult to look at clinical research data and then try to figure out what it's going to really mean in patient care. And you mentioned, Joanne, the absolute number of patients with arthralgias, but there was also a substantial number of patients who got tamoxifen and had arthralgias, and the difference actually wasn't that great. We have these patterns of care surveys. One of the ways we like to try to assess that is just ask people who are taking care of patients. And one of the things that we've asked now, we've asked twice, 
both to clinical researchers in breast cancer, about 50 of them, and community-based medical oncologists, is what fraction of your patients on adjuvant aromatase inhibitors have significant arthralgias, enough that they complain about them, and then what percentage of patients have arthralgias on AIs to the point that you seriously consider discontinuation? Because that seemed like more practical than you know, just what you see in the attack data, et cetera. And it's interesting that we've gotten very, very similar numbers in both surveys from the four different groups. And I'm curious whether you would agree with these, which is the number of patients who have enough arthralgias to sort of complain about is in the 20 to 30% range, the fraction that have enough that you seriously think about switching to another AI or discontinuation is in the 5 to 10% range. Does that sound right to you, Joanne? Absolutely. Dabu, if the anti-tumor effect of tamoxifen and the AIs were identical, how would you stack up the side effects and toxicity profile in general and in the very elderly patient, 85, 90, 95? Well, the risk that really starts to get high in terms of absolute numbers is the thrombotic risk. And that actually is much, much higher than the other risks, especially when you start looking at older patients. So those absolute numbers are what drive me. Now, you are right. Fracture, I think, is a big issue. And when you start looking at people in their 90s, their annual hazard rate for fractures is not insignificant and fracture risks do increase even after just one or two years on drug, as we saw in the ATAC trial. So you do have a good point there. But I still stand by what I said. I think it's a judgment call. I still think that, especially the thrombotic risks, stroke is actually higher in the tamoxifen group as well when you start looking at older patients. In the ATAC trial, stroke was higher. One of the other trials showed that... Right. That was the big study with letrozole. Letrozole, there were more strokes on letrozole. Right. But am I correct, Debu, that there were more strokes on tamoxifen in the ATAC trial? There were. And in the letrozole study, in the big 98, there were more myocardial events. It was a very small number. And if you look at the p-values for multiple comparisons, most statisticians would say that that's probably not enough data to actually conclude that there's a difference. But time will tell because there will be more events on that trial as time goes on. So we'll see if that's a real signal or not. There were more bone data presented from the attack trial at the ASCO meeting. Joanne, you want to comment on that? What that data suggested was that for patients who had normal bone density at the start, they did not develop osteoporosis with Arimidex. They had a steeper decline within the first two years and a slower decline for years two to five. So, yes, there is bone loss, but it's not like a sliding board that's going down straight. It's kind of tailing off. So that is a bit reassuring. And the other thing is relevant to Alan's comment. I thought that the actual incidence of hip fractures were the same in the ATAC trial. The overall incidence of fractures was greater, but am I correct, Abu, that the number of hip fractures are the same? Right. Most of the fractures are from the kinds of fractures you get every day when you fall and break your wrists. So those are higher. But when you look at the real threatening fractures, they were not significantly different. Seems to be like a lot of tumors right now because cardiovascular disease is so important that we start seeing them in these huge studies. You mentioned Avastin before and the TKIs, sunitinib and serafinib. But in terms of the different AIs and what's been seen in terms of coronary artery disease in the trials of and astrozole, letrozole, and exemestane. We are starting to see some data coming out from that. Can you kind of summarize what we know right now, Debu? The studies seem to show that, you know, it depends on how you look at it, and that's a big issue because all of the studies had slightly different definitions for cardiac events and cardiac disease. 
And at this point, even though the Big 98 study seems to be the one that has the biggest difference in events, I'm not sure that any of the data tells me that one might be safer than the other. And the prudent thing to do is to let patients know that there may be a signal, it's very early on, I personally tell them that I don't believe at this point I would say it's significantly different, but I always give them the example of Vioxx where it became more apparent over time. So that if patients should know this in general about medications is that our understanding of toxicities, especially for new drugs, is always incomplete. I don't think, though, at this point, that any of the data is strong enough for me to factor it into decision-making, though. So especially in this patient where one would appropriately be concerned about cardiovascular disease, I wouldn't weigh it in. Actually, one other thing to say about people in their 90s, it turns out that their risk of cardiovascular disease, once you make it to that age, actually is low because they've shown themselves not to have that phenotype. So I don't know that there are enough patients years from trials in patients of this age to say that definitively, but I don't think at this time that I would make that a big issue with AI versus tamoxifen use. But just to clarify in terms of the data that we do have and with all the caveats about collecting it in different trials, et cetera, my understanding was there were signals seen in the big study with letrozole. There was also some stuff seen with exemestane in the switching trial, but there hasn't been anything seen with anastrozole in attack. Joanne, is that the case? That's my understanding as well. Any other questions? Just going Carol? back to the side effects and the management of the myalgias and the arthritis, is there any data on the use of treatment breaks or whether that's successful or what do you use in your clinical practice? There's no data that I'm aware of for that. Tamoxifen has an extremely long half-life, as you know, and usually takes about six weeks for it to clear completely, so I'm not sure what a drug holiday would do. The only time I have taken a patient off tamoxifen in the adjuvant setting is if they were planning to have hip replacement surgery, and I would have them stop it for six weeks before and six weeks after. If I've had a patient who's had really refractory arthralgias and she's miserable, I'll first try a different AI, and sometimes that works. Immediately without a break? Without a break, go to another one. Mm -hmm. They have a shorter Mm half-life. And then if that doesn't work, then I'll switch to tamoxifen. We don't yet have data from the big trial for the switching from AI to tamoxifen, but we will, and theoretically it may not be a problem. So I tell patients I don't have data on that yet, although we have data the other way and offer that as an option. So many people don't like tamoxifen. They prefer AIs because they're just so worried about uterine cancer. So if anybody has a uterus, they really, really worry about tamoxifen. And that's what contributed so much to its lack of use as a prevention agent, which highlights the importance of the STAR trial, actually. And in terms of the arthralgia syndrome, Debu, is there any issue in terms of differential diagnosis? Is it usually very clear that this is AI-related, or sometimes do other sources of arthritis or arthralgias cloud the picture and maybe get missed sometimes? In other words, is there a differential diagnosis that you should go through? Well, probably the most common confounding issue is going to be the arthralgias that we know patients can sometimes develop two or three or as many as six to eight months after chemotherapy, and this is a well-described phenomenon. And that's why in the randomized trials, we saw it in both the tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors' arms. Of course, it was more frequent with aromatase inhibitors, but they're fairly classic. I think they're the temporal association and the nature of these. They tend to be in the hands and feet primarily, although they can be in other joints. Is usually rather straightforward. I think it's unusual to confound it with a metastasis, for example, which, of course, tends to be more localized. Are you seeing the frequent increase in trigger joints, small joints of the hands with trigger fingers? I can't say that I have seen that in my own practice, really. Most patients 
have normal physical exams that I have seen. I'm curious, Carolyn, would you agree with the kinds of numbers that we're getting when we ask oncologists in practice and researchers? Yes, and I also see this reluctance to, I just tell my patients that it seems to me that a much higher proportion discontinued the aromatase inhibitors than ever discontinued tamoxifen once they were on board with tamoxifen and taking medication. Well, the numbers on discontinuing tamoxifen are very high in all of the trials that have looked at, the old trials that have looked at tamoxifen use. So I think there are a lot of patients out there who just don't like that drug. It's unfortunate since it's a drug that's cured more women than any other drug. One final point about AIs. I would say a minority of clinical investigators are very vocal about hanging on to the possibility of using tamoxifen for a couple years, followed by an AI. You hear people talking about it, maybe an ER, PR positive, node negative, trying to select a subset of patients to do that. Dabu, how are you right now approaching hormonal therapy in the postmenopausal patients? Are there any patients who are starting on tamoxifen? I generally start with an AI right off the bat. I've heard all the arguments. I don't think any of them can be said to be definitive until we have data from the direct comparisons, Big 98 in particular. We're simply not going to know. The reason I start with an AI is that the simple math of it is in that first couple of years, there could be recurrences we see in the ATAC study and others that the curves diverge early on. So my feeling is that even the very small numbers of recurrences that may occur in that time may be prevented or delayed by early initiation. So until I have data otherwise, I'm going to start with an AI. I guess the one thing we do know about starting with tamoxifen first is it's probably better on bone mineral density. And now knowing that the patients that are most vulnerable are those that are already starting with low bone mineral density, that might be one group of patients. Let's say you have someone who has low bone mineral density, tried a bisphosphonate in the past for other reasons, was unable to tolerate it, really doesn't want to be on it. Again, that's not going to be many patients, but that would be the type of patient that I may go ahead and give a couple of years of tamoxifen first. And I guess even in that situation, I imagine the risk of recurrence would be important, more likely to do it in a small node negative tumor than a patient who's node positive. That's true, because the absolute risks in the first years are obviously going to be higher in someone with higher risk disease. Joanne, what's your take about this issue of the optimal initial therapy of the postmenopausal patient? Well, I would agree. This idea that one can subset out a group of patients, the ER-positive, PR-negative subset, which was shown in the ATT&CK trial to have a benefit for AIs hasn't been borne out by the other trials, which show a general benefit for AI compared with tamoxifen. So I don't think you can hang your hat on that, although some of us did immediately after that data became available. So I think about all of these things. I think about other drugs that the patients are on. I think about if they have a uterus or not. I think about how active they are and offer choices to patients. But I'll try to steer them one way or another based on the constellation of other features. If they're heavy and sedentary and have a uterus, they don't get tamoxifen. They don't even get discussed that, really. Any sort of rough guess on what fraction of your postmenopausal patients start on tamoxifen versus an AI? I'd say most of them are starting on an AI, except in the setting of a clinical trial. And we had a whole bunch of people on an ongoing trial. It was the so-called TEN trial, which was tamoxifen followed by exemestane versus exemestane. We had a lot of patients on attack, and I was the PI for the North Texas region for that. And we had over 250 patients on that trial, and we're still dealing with the unrelenting follow-up of those patients. 
And then we have this other trial that Steve Jones was involved with. So most of the patients would get funneled onto clinical trials, and there are some that chose not to be on clinical trials. Speaking of unrelenting, I guess that means that you're getting tons of people coming in who've been on Arimidex for five years. Yes, when the attack trial finished and the MA17 data came out, it was a real problem because we really wanted to know whether some of these patients were on tamoxifen, and we had about 250-plus that we were responsible for. At our site, it was about 187 or so. So, And there were some that were on the combination arm that you knew about, and you were allowed to put either on tamoxifen or an AI or an Arimidex, and those patients are now no longer being followed by ATAC as of a new amendment. So not only did they get unblinded and then crossed over, now no one's following them anymore after about seven years. So now the only groups that are going to be followed are the two arms. But yeah, we had a lot of patients who we unblinded, and the ATAC coordinators were very unhappy about that, and some of them have crossed over to get aromatase inhibitors. So the blinding continued... And then yeah. you were concerned that you had people in tamoxifen yeah. who then weren't going to get an AI. You could unblind them, but the ATAC sponsors and the study coordinators, which is largely British, were really unhappy with the whole American participation. And there were 2,000 women in the United States who participated on that 9,000-plus trial. So, so there were 3,000 in England, 2,000 in the United States, and almost all of the unblinding that got done was in the United States. That's fascinating. But it's a real ethical dilemma. You've got a woman who may have been on tamoxifen for five years, and you know she's going to benefit by an AI. Well, that was the experience in the United States, and that did affect that trial, but it's the way things happen as a fallout from other clinical trials. It's fascinating, the difference in the ethic of health. You know, I'm not saying the U.S. is right and others are wrong, but there's a definite difference. Final issue, Dibu, what about selection of an AI at various time points up front after a couple years, after five years? Now we're starting to see data from different agents in different time settings. Right now at this instant, how do you go about that? Well, as time goes on, I think you're right. There is probably less and less of a distinction to be made. When the first trials results were coming out, we were using anastrozole for head-to-head and exemestane for crossover, letrozole for long-term. And, of course, now we have anastrozole for crossover as well. We have letrozole crossover data coming up. We don't have extended data other than with letrozole. There was a small anastrozole trial. a small trial. anastrozole study, right, which really wasn't powered as much anywhere near the MA17 study. But I do think that probably they are interchangeable. I still tend to use for crossover exemestane, but let's say someone has side effects with it, I have no trouble switching over to another AI, which is what I generally do if I encounter side effects. What about choice up front? Up front, again, I don't have a strong preference. We have data, certainly for anastrozole and letrozole. I tend to use anastrozole simply because there's longer safety data. There's probably the largest number of patients that have been followed, so there's a little more confidence in the safety profile in my mind. But I think as time goes on, that's going to wash out. Alan? There was a poster at ASCO, and I think there's been some other data that has shown that I think letrozole does a better job at totally suppressing estrogen levels than anastrozole. I'm wondering if you think that that data has any clinical meaning. Exemestane and letrozole are more effective biochemically at suppressing estrogen, but most of these studies really were done looking at serum estradiol, and where you really want to look is in the tissue, where aromatase activity is highest, particularly in breast tissue. Now, there is a small study that I believe Angela Brody did where they actually did look in tissue and found actually similar things, but I'm not sure that that necessarily translates into a 
clinical benefit at this point in time. In fact, it may explain some of the toxicity differences too. You might even argue that if there is a difference in cardiovascular events, which I don't think at this point there are, but it's conceivable that that effect may actually translate into differential toxicity as well. There is a trial ongoing looking at anastrozole versus letrozole. In node-positive patients who've had full axillary dissections, it's ongoing. I think it's going to be an equal <laughs> study. I think it's going to be hard to show a difference. But there is a trial ongoing which will head-to-head compare these for toxicity and benefit. But it's selected. It's only node-positive, so they can get a quicker answer. Is it MA27 also similar? MA27 is That's XMS-stain. XMS-stain versus anastrol. That's right, correct. So you'll get that also. And then there's the neoadjuvant study that the American College of Surgeons is doing where there's a randomization to the three aromatase inhibitors, and they're looking at clinical and pathologic response as the main endpoint there. It'll be and interesting to see whether they would even have the numbers to be able to detect a small difference in recurrence rate, but maybe they will have enough numbers to look at some of the side effects and toxicity. That could be quite interesting.